I can still remember the sounds, the smells, and the glaring fluorescent lights of Ozark Middle School cafeteria. But more vivid or, or, or deep and like intrinsic into my bones, I can feel that moment of going through the line with my tray, getting thing after thing, always chocolate milk, and turning around and looking out at the sea of all of these other anxious, socially awkward middle schoolers like myself. And this was, you know, before, at least, you know, at least in our church school, that we didn't have assigned seating. And so you just looked out over an open sea of faces and began to make your way through looking for where am I going to sit. And, and the, you know, there's just, I, like I said, I can feel it in my bones moving through and looking at like cafeteria table after cafeteria table where you look and people dodge to make eye contact from you or will look right back at you, but not in a posture of welcome, but like don't even come close. Usually people wearing Abercrombie and Fitch or Hollister clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, you just, you feel like that, that alienation, like that, I mean, there's no way a middle schooler would have that language for it, but like that anxiety and that stress, that, that, that deep loneliness is the word. And then simultaneously, just as deep of a feeling as when you're making your way through with your tray and you finally make eye contact with someone whose face lights up and they call you over and they say, we saved you a seat. Like there is no greater gospel for a socially awkward middle schooler than to hear someone say, we saved you a seat. All of your social anxiety is alleviated. There's a place here for you or you are welcome. It's, it's the best thing in the world. When, when you, I think about like most of what it means to be an adult, at least socially for most of us, relationally today, I really do think that most of us don't ever evolve beyond that feeling of being a middle schooler holding a tray moving through our lives, looking for a place to sit, looking for someone to like look at us and invite us over and either trying to uh, find a way to get people to look at us, invite us in. So maybe we go and buy the Hollister shirt, which I did. Let me tell you, my middle grade, my middle grade body was not made for tight-fitting Hollister shirts, and it actually just made things worse. I wore it once, and I never touched it again. But so many of us are trying what do we do to dawn, to get in, to be able to sit at the table? Or we finally do find an in-way with someone, and then we turn ourselves in away from anyone else that's looking because we don't want to give up or potentially lose the thing that we have. Everybody still is just like a little, you know, snotty-nosed middle schooler trying to find a place to sit. Mother Teresa, when uh, in this interview with her, relating on the differences between her ministry in Calcutta among the dying with leprosy, uh, she said this quote that sticks with me. You'll see it behind me. Uh, she said, "Leprosy, or excuse me, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world." And another time, she would say something similar and would just say that that loneliness is the leprosy not just of the modern world, but specifically the Western world. And so, for those of you who know the story of Mother Teresa, those who don't, as a bit of just kind of to bring us up to speed. Um, St. Teresa, or Mother Teresa, spent her life in Calcutta, in and among the dying, specifically of leprosy. Because of leprosy's high infection rate, basically when someone was sick and beginning to die, literally their body being eaten up by leprosy, they would be left by family and friends on the streets to die alone. And Mother Teresa, what she began to build were these, these, these houses, these hospice, these places of hospice called the City of Peace. It was one of the main ones that she started. And so her ministry was in and among years and years and years of giving herself to those with leprosy, to people 
dying, giving them honor and dignity and care in the midst of them being completely set aside by family and friends. So when she says that loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world, she's not just talking. You know, she, she understands more than any of us in the room the darkness, the depth, and the destruction that leprosy can bring. And as she looked out over the West, decades before the iPhone in your pocket, decades before COVID-19 and the political isolation and estrangement and polarization that we've gone through, before any of that, she looked over at the West and said, yeah, this may be eating up people's bodies, but over in the West, they have something that's eating up their very souls. And so the question is, for her, as she sought to minister to those dying of leprosy, she built up these communities, these houses of hospice and care for those dying from leprosy, and then she had this incredible ministry, sainthood now, you know, you just think of Mother Teresa, and it's about that. Here's just the question for today. If she looks over in the West and identifies that loneliness is our main epidemic, what the U.S. Surgeon General has now called it, agreeing with Mother Teresa, what does a ministry, what do houses of peace, what does a ministry like Mother Teresa's for leprosy look like in a culture of loneliness? Acts 2, 46, just to go back to what we read. I think we get an answer. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. We talked about this three weeks ago. This is their, or two weeks ago, the posture of prayer within their community, going, praying at these hours throughout the days and their weeks. But then, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. The early church was one of open tables, open homes, and open hearts. And this is how they sustained and stewarded the work of the Spirit that began 2,000 years ago and continues on today. And as we ask, what does it look like for us to be a community that's ministering to the lonely? I, I, genu I honestly believe it's not that complicated. It really looks like just having a posture of open, hand, or open tables, open homes, and open hearts like we see in the passage here. You see, they picked this up. This wasn't something that the apostles uh, had an R&D meeting for. They sat down and, okay, how are we going to meet the needs of the city? And, well, let's start having dinner together in one another's home. Well, that's a great idea, Peter. Like, we'll put, put a pin in that for now. Like, you know, that, that seems pretty simplistic. Maybe there's something bigger, some big ministry that we can kick off. And no, they learned this from their rabbi Jesus. See, if you look throughout the Gospel of Luke, there's this great little book called um, a Meal with Jesus by this UK pastor. His name's Tim Chester. And he's literally going through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the ministry of Jesus. And specifically, as the title would give way, The Meal with Jesus, looking at the meals and all the ways that Jesus is just around the table throughout his midst. Great little book. But one of the things he starts with in the introduction is by identifying that there's these two little the statements in Luke's Gospel that appear. And it's the Son of Man came. These statements that Jesus makes about himself. So the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite nickname for himself. And so he would say, the Son of Man came, dot, 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 dot. The Son of Man came, dot, dot, dot. Two times he says it. The first is the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, right? And so what is that? That's about Jesus' purpose. That's his mission. That's what Jesus came to do, to seek and save the lost. That's why we're all here today, right? Yes and amen. The second, though, is Jesus said the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The first was about his purpose, the second was about his method. The first was about what Jesus came to do. The second is about how he did it. How did Jesus come to seek and save the lost? By eating and drinking. By eating and drinking with them. 
And so the early church in Acts 2, what we just read, is the apostles in this early movement just going, oh, we're just following our rabbi. We're just following what Jesus taught us to do. We are here to seek and save the lost as we bring and point people to Jesus. And we do that by breaking bread in one another's homes and inviting the people of the city to be with us. How are we doing? Good. Okay. So I'll also say I'm recovering. I have multiple tests, no longer COVID, but um, I had that this week. So this sermon, I've been, this was one of my favorite ones I was so excited about for this series, and um, it was written in like a fugue state. So if this is anything good today, fully on the spirit is what we're just going to blame on that today, okay? Um, so what I want to do is just like, there's so many examples of, of Jesus's hospitality throughout the Gospels. Like that's the whole book, A Meal with Jesus, is looking at Jesus's hospitality, his welcome of strangers, his eating and drinking with those far from God and eating and drinking with his disciples and with his people. And so you can look at all of these. I just, I love the hospitality of Jesus because it's just so different than what we think. So Jesus, most hospitable guy in the Bible, doesn't have a house, doesn't have a table to bring people over to. Homeless, homeless, most hospitable guy. How does he do it? He's constantly inviting himself over to other people's houses. <laughs> Zacchaeus, he's like, Zacchaeus, guess what, bud? I'm coming to your house today, right? Or, or you think about the Last Supper, and it's like, hey, he sends his disciples. You guys go into town. You're going to find this guy standing by a well. Just tell him, like, the rabbi wants to use your living. It's like, yeah, oh, the guy, welcome. But Jesus just gives us this portrait of hospitality that is so different than what most of us think of as, like, entertaining, Right? It's about welcoming the strangers. And so the boundaries between guest and host in the way of Jesus are often, like they're just, they jump back and forth all over the place. So we could look at all kinds of examples. I just want to look at one today to kind of like let us kind of bake a little bit in Jesus-style hospitality. So John chapter 13 is where we're going to do that. John chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. We're approaching Jesus' cross. In just a few hours, Jesus is going to go to the cross and go to his death. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. Jesus loved his disciples all the way to the end, all the way to the cross. And what did that look like? Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. Many of you know that story. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that is, his own, Jesus' hands, and that he had come from God. So, knowing this, he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel that was tied around him. Now, just jump down with me to verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and he said to them, do you know what I've done to you or done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and, and you're speaking rightly. That's what I am and who I am. So if I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Now, just a few things I want to point out about Jesus-style hospitality in this passage, okay? Two things. One, it's just why I picked this one over others, is first, though food is central to Jesus-style hospitality, it is secondary. 
That's why you could do stories of Jesus having dinner with Zacchaeus. But when you look at all these different stories, Jesus going over to uh, other people's homes and houses, food is all, the table is always set. And yet Jesus' hospitality is always taking place in and around the table, but not necessarily just through the table. It's central, but it's, it's secondary. The, the whole goal of Christian hospitality is not simply to open up our tables and to give people food. There is a deeper, larger psychological, spiritual, emotional, relational needs that are being met in and around the table. And so food is central to that work taking place. There's a stat I read this week. You know when human beings are most happy? When you're most happy. Just think about what you would guess, most happy. It's when we're eating with others and then the extra bonus for extra happiness is outside. Like humans that are happiest is when we're eating with others outside, right? So this is like every kinfolk. Is kinfolk still a thing? Every kinfolk magazine, right? Is they, they've got, why is that like such a like pleasant thing? It's because that's like, that's the happiest that you're looking at that people at their happiest, at least pretending to be while they're getting pictures taken of them. Um, I think having pictures taken of you actually takes down the happiness. So the first thing just to notice in Jesus's hospitality here is the, the table, the food, the meal that he's having with them, it's central, but it's secondary to a greater work that he's doing, which reveals to us second about Jesus-style hospitality is that it's ordinary. Now, some of us, because we're not used to foot washing, this seems very like esoteric or like sacramental. Ooh, he's washing their feet. This was as common in daily ritual as brushing your teeth and taking a shower. Super, super ordinary. And, and so in many ways, hospitality in the ancient world was synonymous with foot washing because it was when you came over to someone's house, the thing that you would do before you sat down for dinner, you would, you would have your feet washed. Now that would either be sometimes depending on how good of a host you would have, sometimes it would be they would just leave a, a bowl of cold water when you walked in. And then on the other side, like the very, very honoring thing would be that you would then potentially have a slave or a servant wash your feet for you. And then, or if you were to be really hospitable, would be the woman, the main woman of the house, like the, the matriarch of the family would wash a guest's feet. Never men washing feet. We're gonna come back to that in a moment. But this is the range of like, it's just, it's, it's actually very ordinary in the ancient world, this kind of foot washing thing that Jesus is doing. He's not doing anything esoteric. He's not doing anything crazy. It's the ordinary meeting of ordinary needs. In the ancient world, you don't have shoes. You have open-toed sandals at best. No pavement, you're walking around in dirt and animal smuck. Like you can just imagine what your feet are going, cracked and broken and nasty and dirt and mess. And so before you came into the house and were eating dinner, like no one wants to smell that all meal long. And so you would wash your feet before you entered the home, before you had the meal. Super ordinary. And so the hospitality that Jesus provides for us is not anything crazy, but in the words of Rosario Butterfield, it's radically ordinary. It's just so ordinary. And that's the place that Jesus meets them. That's the place that Jesus meets them. And so it's ordinary. And then first, and to actually look back at the passage itself, though, um, what I love in verse uh, 1 of, of verse 13 is we get the primary motivation of Jesus-style hospitality. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this maybe just seems very, like, intuitive, but hospitality is rooted in love. What motivated Jesus to wash his disciples' feet? It was not manipulation, not proving himself before them, not being someone for them like so much of entertaining can become. It was simply him meeting the very simple needs of his disciples rooted in deep love. The building framework for all biblical hospitality, it, be, it has to, it always begins in love. 
if it ends in anything else, manipulation, trying to get something out of someone or turn them into whatever it may, it will always, it no longer ceases to be hospitality. It begins to become manipulation. And so true hospitality is rooted in love, which leads us to the second thing. In verse two, who gets included in the foot washing? That was, you, you can answer if you know. Ju- Judas. What, what does verse two tell us before Jesus washes his feet? Like, do you just notice that John is loading up the intention of what's going to happen here? We don't read about Judas's betrayal a couple chapters later when it actually happens. John reminds us in the middle of the story that, Je- that Judas is going to betray him right before we read that Jesus is washing Judas's feet. And so again, this motivating love of hospitality is inclusive in the sense that it's open to everyone, even our enemies, even the very people that are going to betray Jesus. Or let's just involve, maybe if you know, Judas is there, we've also got Peter. Not only the person who's going to uh, betray him, but the one that's going to deny him. And then he's washing the feet of the rest of the disciples. What are the rest of the disciples gonna do? That don't deny or betray. They all abandon him. So Jesus is just giving welcome hospitality that's not dependent on whether or not they reciprocate it in kind the way that he thinks they should in this moment. He's simply content to love and give and welcome and meet their needs regardless of whether or not they receive it in the best way. So it's, it's radically inclusive. Next, I love in verse three, where it says that before Jesus washes, but like verse four says, so he got up from supper and he laid everything aside and he begins to wash their feet. Right before that, verse three says what? Jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God. He was going back to him. What, why has John mentioned this? The hospitality of Jesus is an expression of his identity. It's not him earning it. Does that make sense? For so many, and I, and I say this because there's, for some of us here, the desire to entertain, the tire, desire to be a hospitable person, to be a loving person, to be the kind of person whose home and table and heart are always open to someone is not an expression of who they already are, but their desire to try to be that kind of a person. I want to be a hospitable person. I want to be that kind of a person. For Jesus, his hospitality is not him proving something. It's him just living out who he is, who he knows himself to be in light of his relationship with the Father. And so it's not him earning being a hospitable person. It's just an expression of the fact, I know who I am. I know the love that I have reciprocated back and forth forever between me and the Father. And so it's out of that that I can give and give and give to others in kind. And then finally in verse um, four and five, we find, we read Jesus actually washing their feet, taking the towel, tying it around his waist, and he begins to wash and dry their feet. And this is just simply, like I said a moment ago, this is that Jesus-styled hospitality is, is humbling. Humiliating might even be the better word, which is they're both related on purpose. But it's humbling. Jesus takes on the posture here of, of what would have been seen as the work of a servant or a slave in an ancient kind of more patriarchal, that, that's a woman's work. It was forbidden by other rabbis for a Jewish man to, to wash the feet of, of anyone because of how low that was seen. And then specifically to like this story right here, the common practice was the disciples would wash their rabbi's feet, not the other way around. And whether or not it got forgotten to get mentioned, but I think it's interesting that we don't hear any mention of the disciples washing Jesus's feet. So this isn't a, they washed his feet and then they sat down at the meal. And then, okay, Jesus goes, okay, I'm gonna make a point to show something now. It seems almost like they, they almost forgot to do their part of the, of the work. 
And Jesus nevertheless got up and he began to wash their feet, entering into the posture of a servant, entering into the work that would have been set aside for slaves. It was a hospitality that was humbling. It was not lifting him up, but setting himself down so that he could lift up and care for others. This is why in the passages that we jumped, verses we jumped over, six through 11, Peter loses his mind over what Jesus is doing. As Jesus begins to wash Peter's feet, he goes, um, what are you doing to wash my feet? Are you gonna wash my feet? Jesus said, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward, you're, you're gonna get this, Peter. And he goes, you, you, you will never wash my feet. Like, do you see, Peter understands the weight of what Jesus is entering into and his hospitality here. And Jesus goes, man, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. If I'm not able to welcome you in and to meet your needs, then there's no receptivity of this. And then Peter, he flips so fastly like he always does. He says, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Like, if you're gonna wash my feet, wash all of me. And then Jesus, goes, he goes, it's okay, just the feet. Like, it's literally what he says. So what we find here is this, Jesus goes, this is the example that I'm leaving you as a hospitality. And then we read, I'm giving you an example as my disciples, as your Lord, as your master, as your king, as your God, as your rabbi, the one whom you follow. If this is what I have done for you, he doesn't say you ought to do for me. He says you ought to do for one another. Now, many have taken Jesus's words here to be that Christians should regularly wash one another's feet. Um, Here's, here's the reality. It's a, it's a cultural practice. We have shoes now. We have daily bathing that they didn't in the ancient world. And so similar to greeting one another with a holy kiss like we read in the New Testament is a cultural practice, but one that even throughout the New Testament you will find doesn't get set up and recommanded over and over again. What we find is that throughout the rest of the New Testament, this example that Jesus leaves of an ordinary, humble hospitality, meeting the needs of others with an inclusive, regardless of how they respond, that gets applied through the language of hospitality. Three examples. I could go all day, but three examples. Romans 12 says, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. Pursue practice, seek hospitality. It's not, you know, when it kind of works out, pursue, chase after opportunities to open your table, open your home, open your heart. Hebrews 13, 12 puts it in the negative. Uh, let, or uh, Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, let brotherly love continue and then don't neglect to show hospitality. The idea being that, that there are two postures. There's pursuing hospitality or neglecting. There's no middle ground with hospitality here. And specifically that hospitality is synonymous with the fellowship and the brotherly love of the church. And then finally, Titus 1, 8, an overseer, an elder or pastor of God's household. What must a pastor be? Among the short list, hospitable. There's a whole sermon right there. Why must a pastor be hospitable? Pastors are in some way meant to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And key to following Jesus, the one who came eating and drinking, is that pastors must show themselves as ones who similarly have a hospitable posture, open hearts, open lives, open tables, open homes. Like this is part of what it means to be an overseer. So this command continues. Okay, I'll ask again. How are we doing so far? The COVID sermon's doing okay? All right, man. Good. Okay. So here, here's what I move to now. It's just kind of to ask, get really practical now out of this. How, how do we actively live into this as a community? How do we become a place where we can meet uh, the great epidemic of loneliness, not only for those in our city, but also for the sake that like, all of us in here are experiencing that within ourselves, right? How can we become a people of hospitality? 
Well, the first is just to acknowledge, like, the way that Henry Nouwen puts it is that hospitality is actually, it's a mode of being, it's a posture of life, which can take up a myriad of forms that are as, like, varying as each individual person. Hospitality looks differently for you in your stage of life, for me versus you. We have different stages of life and even different living ability. Like what our lives look like, what hospitality looks like will look differently for, for each of us. And so in light of that, I could simply say, you know, this week, just you sit down and think about hospitality and what that would look like for you. Um, and, and you probably should do that. But I want to just give two practices for hospitality and then two postures. Two practices for hospitality, like the beginning stages of this, and then two postures that I think are, are necessary within us. So the first practice of how we can enter into this is, again, I, I mentioned uh, Rosaria Butterfield, her uh, book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, is 100% one of the best books on hospitality. She's, I, she's just, she's incredible. She's, it's so great. Um, so I, I'm about to just summarize the whole story, book. I'm not going to do that. Um, but throughout the book, she basically uses the language of radically ordinary hospitality. It's radical in comparison to the way that many of us live our lives today, but it's actually quite ordinary because it just looks like opening up our homes and our tables and our lives to one another. Um, she talks about um, that what happens when we enter into radically ordinary hospitality is the lines between host and guest blur where you came over, but you also brought a bunch of food, or you came over to my house, but then, or I came over to your house, but then I'm doing the dishes right now. Like, it's, we're moving beyond entertaining. We're sharing one another's life together. We're welcoming one another. Even though it may be at someone's house, we're welcoming each other as we participate in that. And so there's a very simple, like, how do I step into that? The beginning stage for some of us may be just prioritizing, making a practice of once a week, opening home table, and life to another. Whether that's you once a week going over to someone's house and then switching and them coming over to your apartment, whatever it may look like, a larger group, a smaller group, personality kind of totally fits within that. Some of us want to like party a huge group of people in the backyard. Some of us were like, just one person over for dinner would be nice. <laughs> Hospitality, all the same, right? And so part of it is just thinking through what would that look like? And then building out a rhythm where, man, I just commit, I practice, I pursue once a week as the beginning stage, twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, whatever that might look like, that I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna move myself to open my home and my life to receive and welcome others in. Um, Adele Calhoun in her book, uh, Handbook of the Spiritual Disciplines, or Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, she gives some really good helpful examples for those of us that are new to the journey. So first she just says, um, one of the ways that we can practice hospitality is pray for the people that you invite into your home. So when you have people over for dinner, just make a point, you're gonna, hopefully you pray for dinner, like that's kind of fallen, that's not cool anymore. But pray, if you pray for dinner, and then when you're praying for dinner, God bless the food. And, and also, you know, whoever's at the table, you know their story as we're talking, man, you know, what they're going through, a loss, work, something like that. You just, you take that opportunity right then to pray for them. Um, reach out to those beyond your family and close friends. Host exchange students or someone coming from out of town. Spontaneously invite others over for a meal or out for a meal. Host a craving, this, y'all, Anybody wants to do this with me, let's talk before you leave today. Host a craving potluck and ask people to bring something they crave. Don't try to make it perfect. Just, I, I know one family that they would regularly get together with other families and they just did like this DoorDash buffet thing where multiple people would like everyone's favorite restaurant, they would DoorDash and bring it over and then everybody would just like share stuff together. Uh, let your guests help while they're in your home host a leftovers gathering in which people simply bring what's in the refrigerator. The Brickners are serving in uh, kids' ministry. Actually, Shana's sitting on the ground. Hey, Shana. Um, 
But um, they, uh, so we did this a couple weeks back with the Brickners, and it was so fun. We're like, do you guys want to do, I don't want to cook, and like, we're just, the food, money, expense, and they were like, they had leftovers, we had leftovers, we just brought them all over to their house, we're microwaving and cooking stuff up. So I'm eating a bunch of like, um, Isaac's leftover Indian food, and it's like new to me, because I didn't go to that Indian restaurant, and then he's eating, you know, whatever leftover pizza or whatever that I had. Like, it's, it's great. I'm such a huge fan of leftover gatherings. Um, and then she just in- includes creating a standard list of conversation questions, put people at ease, invite people to open up. You know, for some of us that are socially awkward, like, and, and just it'd be helpful to like, you know, tell me about, you know, your favorite experience, like summer, I don't know, summer camp. I'm trying to make up something right now. This is why we need them. Uh, <laughs> you know, tell me about, like, what was, you know, what's your favorite summer memory, like as a kid growing up? Like, some, you know, whatever. And just setting up a context to be known, welcome, to receive one another. It really is this simple. It is this radically ordinary, right? And so it just begins first with that. Okay, second, 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 second practice would be, um, would just be entering into the regional rhythms of our church as an avenue of hospitality. Hear me here. The first is every other week, Lorenzo talked about, we have neighborhood dinners that are gathering. We have these three regions in around the west side and, and, and making a way, hopefully, that hospitality and life together, impromptu meals and stuff like this can actually take place. And it's not like we've got to schedule three weeks ahead because driving you know, over to where you live takes 17 years or whatever, right? Um, where it's just like, oh yeah, you live, like even when traffic's at its worst, you're never more than 20 minutes away, right? At worst. And I can, I can run faster if I need to, to get over there. But like with these region rhythms, and so the regional rhythms that we have is first, every other week we gather together for dinner. This is hospitality. We are opening our homes and our tables to be together, to eat together, to celebrate one another, where people that are new to the community have a created space where they're able to enter in and know that they're going to be received and welcomed well. And then as our life continues, that we're getting dinner, we're spending time together, we're catching up with one another's lives, and we're getting to know each other on an every other weekly basis. And here's what's great. Going back to my first thing, if you're saying, I want to commit to like once a week at least as a beginning place, having a meal with others. Every week the neighborhood dinner happens, it's done. You've knocked off like two churchy things in one week. Congratulations. See how easy this can be? Um, and so first it's just neighborhood dinner, opening. Oh, and the, the thing is, it's, just, it's so nice because like with, that, with, the major, with the exception of like a few people in here, for most of you, it's not in your house. You get to bring food and contribute, but like it's actually like, you know, training wheels for hospitality, because it's just like, yeah, you get to show up. And like, if you bring something, that's awesome. But if you forget to, that's okay. Like, we're going to cover for it. Like, it'll, it'll work out. It's like training wheels for hospitality. Um, but it's also like the heart of the of, of rhythm that we're, we're committed to. Part of these regional rhythms, though, is also not just doing our neighborhood dinners every other week, but serving on Sundays together on uh, every third Sunday. Every three Sundays, serving together. And, and this is, again, this is hospitality, like 101 kind of stuff serving together on Sundays. Because what we're doing, if our neighborhood dinners are when we're welcoming one another and being hospitable to one another and to those who are like new to our region, the serving opportunities is when we as a region get to connect and then be hospitable to others. Where it doesn't become overly insular, but we get to serve as a community, as a region for others in our church and those that are coming in. To literally show up a little bit early, to set up, to prepare, to literally set the table in some cases for people to be welcomed in, to come into the gathering and feel like they have a place to worship and be enjoyed and received. Where someone can like say as they walk in, we saved you a seat here, right? We have a place for you. Literally, we laid out extra seats for you. 
Now, one of the, this is one of the things is I, I really, can I put on my like explicit pastor hat for a moment? Okay. Um, Collective Church, I love you all to death. This is one of the deep rhythms that many of you are contributing to, so thank you. So from the deep bottom of my heart, thank you. For some of you, I wanna call you into this, po- this posture of hospitality. I wanna call you into this. Um, we, 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 we need you. Um, there, there's a work that we're trying to contribute to make a place that's hospitable that, that currently is happening well, it's rolling, but, it, but at times it's just we, we don't have the people. So let me just, again, now I'm wearing my pastor hat and I'm putting on my dad hat. Emma is here. She has her little headphones on where she can't hear us right now. So it's kind of weird because she's just coloring right here. Um, we closed the elementary classroom today. And this happens on a fairly regular basis um, where we need to close one or two of our classrooms in the kids' ministry. Okay? Um, just put on your hospitality. Now you're wearing a hat. Put on your hospitality hat for a moment um, and think about the new mom who comes in and the nursery's closed. Okay? Now this is not to shame. Hear me, hear me. I'm not shaming. I'm just trying to get you to imagine with me. Okay? Think about that. And also think about um, our elementary kids. It's not just Emma who's in here today who come to church and find out on the Sunday gathering, um, there's, there's, there's no class for you today. Why is there no? Well, we don't, have, we don't have volunteers that are able to serve for you. And then so what do they do? They come and they sit in a room full of people. There's plenty of people that could be volunteering and being with me right now and opening space and having it be welcome. So I, I'm just saying, here's, as my, as a, as a, not just as a pastor, but also as a dad, I currently lack the ability of how to communicate this situation to my daughter in any other way than leaving her feeling like the kid looking out at the cafeteria table. Lots of people, but no one that's looking for me. And so I don't say, like, hear me, if this is like shame in your heart or guilt, I am, that, is, that is the furthest thing of what I'm trying to do right now. What I'm trying to say is, Jesus is calling us to be a community of hospitality in one of the key places this is being forgotten right now or just not prioritized, not pursued in the words of Romans 13 is specifically within our children's ministry. Is it ordinary? Yes. Is it inclusive to who may even be your enemies? At time, yes. You can hear them right now. Is it, is it humbling? 100%. But is it motivated in love? And is it creating a space where these little ones from the beginning of their experience of the church finds it as a place where someone looks at them when they walk in the door and they say, we saved you a seat. We're so happy you're here. That's the kind of community that we want to be. How are we doing? So we're alleviating no shame invitation, okay? Two practices. So the first practice was just giving ourselves to like the informal rhythms of a hospitable life. The second is these kind of more formal rhythms within the life of our church, our neighborhood dinners, and our Sunday serving. Now, two postures for hospitality. The first is just to set in the ground. The Greek word, here we are, Bible nerd nugget moment. The Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia. It literally means love of the stranger or love of the other. Hospitality is the opposite of xenophobia, fear of the other, fear of the stranger. Hospitality is a love for those that are different than us, those who are in a different place than us. And so this is not, this is in the midst of calling us to like very much, it, it feels like in some ways for the majority of us, calling us to kind of the training wheels of hospitality. One thing that I just want to point at is that the end goal in all of this is a love that's directed towards the other, the stranger, those that are different than us. The most explicit form this takes is like Mother Teresa and her ministry towards those with leprosy. But this happens within our city as we meet and find ways to care for the unhoused, our unhoused neighbors and also those in the foster care system through Foster the City and work like that. That is 100% 
part of what it means for there to be hospitality. And one, again, of the baseline immediate places and ways that this can take is simply y'all sitting somewhere different on a Sunday. I, again, now I'm putting the pastor hat back on again, is um, there, there is, but here's the thing. I am not, like, we're not gonna assign seating or make you, not, like, sit next to people that you don't know. I'm so for it. But there is, like, a legitimate, like, to the point where it's now become a trope within the community that there is one part of the church and another part of the church. And um, it's, it's so, yeah, some of you guys, I see you guys breaking the trend. May your tribe increase. Like, so here, here's, here's one of my thing. I'm not trying to be overly silly, like, g- genuinely, like, I was talking to somebody in the church who, he bumped into somebody at a coffee shop who recognized him from Collective. And her, and if this was you, this is not, to, again, to shame anybody, but her immediate thing was like, oh, what side of Collective are you on? <laughs> and I was just like, I'm gonna go jump out a window right now. Like, excuse me. This is like, I am so, I, I love the deep-knit community that's taking place within the community, in particular, within like these different groups within a church. But hear me, the, one of the great problems within our community, one of the great risks of our community is what sociologists call the narcissism of similarities, which is where hospitality and fellowship and community are directed towards those that in some way mirror back at us aspects of ourselves. So on one level, that's where comfort happens. Yeah, you're with people that know you, similar stage of life, similar, you know, angle of life, but that's just, that's not biblical hospitality. It's not biblical hospitality. And so there has been, in the history of collective, like, little cliques that establish that by like the work of Jesus, like part of my job as a pastor is to try to smash and say, in the name of Jesus, I love that you guys have this. The goal of the Christian community is faced outward, not inward. And so I was asked a couple weeks ago, like what's your favorite thing about Collective by someone that was new to Collective? You know what I said? I said the community here. I said, we, they, we love one another. We're so committed to one another. And like we just, nobody hangs out after church as long as y'all do. You guys love each other. Y'all go to the park. We've got neighborhood dinners that are happening. Like you just, deep community. And do you know what one of the, like, the great risks, the great challenge of this is? Is community. Is the beginnings where this church ceases to become a place that's committed to Jesus and being outwardly focused on what God wants to do as people come in and we begin to revolve around one another. And we begun to become a little collection of three or four little sub-churches here where you've got like the Gen Z influencer church and you've got the millennial mom church, Right? And then you've got, right? And I'm, I'm not, I'm, hear me, I'm not like ragging or shaming. I'm simply saying the invitation of the church is welcome and hospitality to one another where we're receiving and inviting one another. Love of the stranger. Love of the one that's different than us. So there's some of you that have joked about like, I'm gonna start sitting over here. Or I'm gonna start sitting over here. Yes and amen. It's a simple, silly thing. But the life of our community will grow greater and greater, not as we huddle in around those that are like us, but as our community begins to bloom and we start getting to know those that are stages and ages differently than our own. Amen? Okay. One last, one last, posture, one last posture, one last posture. First Peter 4, uh, verse 8 and 9. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. If the line about loving the stranger and us trying to move towards one another and really enter into that is is maybe for some of us that are earlier on in our journey with Jesus, I believe this is the one that's a good reminder for those of us that maybe are a little bit further along. And maybe it's for all of us, but love one another without complaining, without grumbling is how it can be translated. 
as you began to enter into the way of Jesus, of, of specifically inclusive love, loving people like Jesus did, washing the feet of people who will betray you, loving people who will deny you, pursuing and opening up your life and your home and your table for those that will abandon you or even worse, just be apathetic toward you. It is very easy to show hospitality with grumbling. To do it because you're trying to manipulate them and then you grumble when it's not working, when it's not reciprocated. I feel like I'm always the one calling people. I'm always the one that's, in a healthy community, it'll always be reciprocal. Hospitality will always be reciprocal in a healthy community, but it will never be even. You hear me on that? True hospitality in a community of faith will always be reciprocal, be giving and taking. Host and guest will be at interplay at all times, but it will never be even because we are all at different stages and areas of need and loss and grief and pain. There will be seasons of your life when everything hits the fan and the bottom falls out and you will be nothing but guest in the community, cared for, loved, welcomed, received, given, and you will, how will I ever pay back this? Yes and amen. And there will also be seasons when you and your maturity will come into what Ronald Rollheiser calls moral loneliness, where you are giving yourself over and over to people, finding that it's not reciprocated, finding that you're the one that's always opening up the door, and it will become so tempting, so tempting to keep doing it, hoping that you'll manipulate them into finally reciprocating it and grumbling the whole way there. And the invitation of Jesus, what Peter reminds us of, why would Jesus say, why would Peter write, be hospitable to one another without complaining? Who did he spend three years, the best guy in hospitality ever, with? With Jesus. And he watched Jesus overflowing with a love that covered a multitude of sins, a hospitality that covered all kinds of immaturity and brokenness. And Jesus continued to open his life and invite himself over into other people's homes and tables, giving himself and giving himself and able to do it without complaining. This is the big shift of maturity. For those of us maybe a few stages along, you're like, man, I feel like I've been walking in hospitality. This is the thing to keep an eye out for and the thing to lean into. How can I continue like Jesus to give hospitality to the people that may betray, abandon, or just be apathetic to me? And I'm gonna continue to do it without grumbling. It comes only through being filled with the love of God for people. So those are my two practices, my two postures. This is the, um, these, these four little things right here are little points on a continuum of hospitality on, on, on which you've got like all the way over here, you've got Mother Teresa and her hospitality to those with leprosy. Along the way, you've got all these different points of foster care and uh, care for unhoused neighbors and individuals around you. You've got care for single mothers and, and widows and people within the church and you've got neighborhood, didn't, like you've got all of these little points on this continuum that, that are the movement of hospitality that all point to Jesus himself. And I'll come back to Jesus himself. Jesus is just emanates this kind of hospitality because he, it, because it emanates from God himself. Jesus, as God in the flesh, Jesus, as, as, as the Son with the Trinity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, emanates hospitality, emanates hospitality. Um, this is uh, Andrei Rublev's uh, The Trinity, this is a Russian Orthodox icon. Um, no, we're not a Russian Orthodox church, um, if, if you need that reminder. But um, we do, I do like icons. I have a representation of this um, on my desk at home, not because I pray to it, 
because that's not what icons are for. Uh, these little icons and things like this are meant not to pray to. They're meant to be like, like guided theology. They guide your prayers. As you look at it and you begin to understand how the art works, it simply brings pieces of theology to mind that are being represented this way in a largely illiterate context that people are able to gather and see, and it guides their prayers, and so it continues today. Uh, Rublev's here is, is known as um, one of the greatest icons in history and one of the greatest works of Russian art. There's actually a huge bunch of politics around it right now um, with Putin taking it out of museums and trying to kind of basically use it as a um, totem in the midst of everything going, the invasion of Ukraine. So side thing, sad story in the midst of the icon. So... Um, so let me just kind of, can I just for a moment invite you guys into just like dwelling on what's going on here? So in Rublev's icon, you have um, this portrait of these three angels. This is taken from the story of Genesis where God comes to Abraham and Sarah to promise the covenant and all that's going on with them. But it's, it's in these three angels that come and eat with them. And so uh, what you have uh, here is, um, one, how do you get to the Trinity that God is um, one God, three persons? You can't like artistically draw that. So this, is, this was Rublev's best attempt. And so you have uh, the angels have the same faces. They have the same staff. They have the same blue um, robe, which is like an image of divinity. They have the same throne that they're sitting on. And so they all together are uh, this kind of one, and yet there's distinction within them. So on the left would be the angel that kind of signifies the father. So wrapped in kind of this dazzling like light, the father of lights, right? Behind the father, you can see this house that would either be Abraham's house or likely taken from the prodigal son, the father waiting on the front porch, looking out over the field for his prodigal child to return home, right? So you have the father. Um, in the middle, you have the son uh, incarnate in Jesus. And so you have him wrapped both with the blue of divinity, the gold of royalty, and then that red kind of brown that's both like the humanity, earthiness, but also the blood of his sacrifice. And behind him is the tree of life, but also the tree that is his cross, right? And then on the far right would be the angel that he's kind of using to signify the Holy Spirit. So the blue of divinity and then the green, which would be of life. The Spirit is the one who brings life. And then behind the spirit is this mountain and the idea being that the spirit meets us in the wilderness and brings us to the cross of Jesus who brings us back home to the father. So for like illiterate people, how do you summarize how the triune God is at work within like all of, this is his best attempt, right? This is, but this is all like, you could go on and on for hours on this stuff. But here's the, here's the main thing about the, the Trinity by Rublev. At the center of the table, you see the chalice, that has a little sacrificial animal that's it's pointing to Jesus' sacrifice of his life. But the um, portrait of, of this is a, it's a four-sided table, and the three persons of the Trinity are sitting with an open place at the table. And so the whole point is Rublev is trying to get the viewer to see themselves as being invited to sit down at the table with, with God, like Abraham and Sarah, to make a covenant, to make fellowship and relationship with you. And so this is why Rublev's The Trinity has also been referred to as the hospitality of the Trinity. Um, it's this portrait of like, what's going on in the story of the gospel? How do you communicate deep theology in a way that people are able to pray it and experience it of like, what is the gospel all about? What is the Christian faith all about? It is the one God in three persons who has made a way to invite you into their very deep communion and relationship. To, to quite literally say, we saved you a seat in the most explicit sense of the word saved. 
that the Spirit has met you and made a place for you, drawing you to Jesus through Jesus' death on the cross, his sacrifice to atone and forgive sins, to bring newness of life, and to bring us into the home of the Father for a deeper, deeper relationship. The invitation of the gospel is an invitation of, of God's hospitality. And the invitation then of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is for us not just to come and sit at the table, but then for us with God to look out at the world and to hold up our own humbling sacrifice alongside pointing to Jesus's and to look out at the world, to look at an epidemic of loneliness and to say, we saved you a seat. That is the invitation of what this is all about. And so ordinary hospitality, following the way of Jesus, all of this is about the fact that we ourselves have received this sort of hospitality in God. And the invitation is not just to receive it, but then to become brokers of the hospitality of God, giving it out to the world, inviting them in to receive all that God has for them. Let's pray.